rejected at Nazareth. From Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through to verse 30. My dearly beloved brethren and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, you'll remember that we were with our Lord Jesus Christ when he was with the Samaritans for two days. After he had spoken to that woman, of course, he went north, you remember, and came to Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine earlier. And it was at that place, brethren and sisters, you will remember at our last class, that the nobleman came from Capernaum, and by word of mouth, the Lord Jesus Christ was able to send his power to Capernaum some 20-odd miles to the shore of Galilee, and there to effect that remarkable healing of the nobleman's son. It was at this time, brethren and sisters, that the Gospel writers combined to tell us that this was the real official beginning of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that when we compare the records in, in Luke and Mark and in Acts chapter 10 and in Matthew. If you compare all those records, there's no doubt whatever that this is the beginning of his ministry. And it's very significant, brethren and sisters, that it began in Galilee. The people that walked in darkness had seen a great light. Now, what was it that began that ministry? It was this, that it was at that time, we are told in, in Mark, as in Acts chapter 10, that they put John in prison. And as soon as John was taken from the scene and put into prison, that was the signal for our Lord to commence his ministry. Now, I believe, brethren and sisters, it's of the greatest significance that before he entered really into that ministry, he paid his last visit, or should I say one of his last visits, to Nazareth. There is evidence that he went there later on. Some think it's the same incident. It's very difficult to be able to determine one way or the other. But certainly this, he never spent much more time in Nazareth after this. But it would appear to me that the Lord Jesus Christ, before he stepped into the public eye here, was going to go to Nazareth and give them their opportunity to accept him as he was. And from then, of course, Having rejected him, he moved away and from then on Capernaum became his home city in the north of the land. Now when we come therefore to the fourth chapter of Luke, it records that visit to Nazareth. Verse 16, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Now you think about that, brethren and sisters, and I believe that we can make this record live if we can try and see what it was here that caused these people to reject our Lord Jesus Christ. Try and enter into their feelings without making their decision. You think about this. He'd been brought up in that, little, in that little village, and it was only a little village. Everybody would know everybody else. As we learn from Matthew 13, they knew all his brothers and his sisters, and his mother, and what they thought was his father. They knew all of them. And here he comes, back into that little village, after verse 15 tells us that he taught in their synagogues being glorified of all. Now you imagine that. 30 years he is now, 30 years of age. They'd watched him grow up from babyhood. He was just another Nazarene. Although an extraordinary one. But he had done nothing to project himself in that place, it was not the time to do it. We'll see that in a moment. Quite a dramatic moment, really, because he had a signal from God to do that. He hadn't done that yet. And although he would have made a great impression upon the people, our Lord couldn't do anything else but that. He wouldn't have made any great claims. And he's coming back to his hometown, and the little village is abuzz with excitement because now he's returning back in an aura of greatness. The last time they saw him, brethren and sisters, we read in the record, he was subject to his mother and to Joseph. That's what the record says. So they had witnessed him subject to what they thought was his parents. Now he comes back in this aura of greatness. And it was the Sabbath day. And as was his custom, we read, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. We learn from Jewish traditions, brethren and sisters, and they're fairly reliable, because the Jews, of course, wrote these things down, and, and the Jewish laws, uh, which, of course, they inculcated their traditions into the law of Moses, are well documented. So we would, or we would know exactly what went on here. And our Lord would have been in that synagogue from the age of five. 
Children were taken into the synagogue from five years of age. They would have seen him in that synagogue every Sabbath day and his parents, or rather his mother and Joseph, would never have missed the Sabbath. You can rest assured upon that. Two people like that would not miss a Sabbath. He would be a regular attendant there every Sabbath as his custom was. And for 25 years or more he had been in that synagogue as a silent listener. Now I believe we can be sure of that. I believe that it wasn't until this point that he stood up and said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's done this to make me preach. And we can infer from that, brethren and sisters, until that time he had sat there in silence. And you can imagine, therefore, when he walked into that synagogue on that day, and now they know he's been preaching, and he stands up to read. One can only just imagine, and I try and do this, can you just imagine our Lord Jesus Christ as he grew up into, say, from boyhood into teenage and on through into manhood, listening to the dribble what you would have heard from that platform for 25 years and putting up with that? And when you read some of the speeches that were given in those synagogues where the rabbis vied for each other to be different, and Edersheim in his work gives some of the examples of what rabbis would say to be different from the next rabbi and the extravagances which, which they took with the word of God would have been deplorable and our Lord Jesus Christ would have sat there for 25 years and listened to that. And now he's back and everybody's watching him. And he goes in there and he stood up for the read. Now brothers and sisters, he wouldn't have done that of his own volition. That was not the, the synagogue service to do that. What they did, among other things, there were a lot of prayers opened up that meeting, several prayers. And when it got to the reading, they used to take portions from the law and a portion from the prophets. And they had a lectionary, that is, they had a, a system of readings which was spread over the year. And each day of the year, it was like a daily meeting, they selected a portion of the law and a portion of the prophets to be read on the Sabbath days in the synagogue. And they were carefully selected for the days of the year. When it came to the reading of the prophet, the law rather, that would be read of men of official class. They still recognised in these days certain Levitical lines. And men from Levi only would read those laws who were either Levites or priests. And there'd be four or five or maybe six of them would stand up in turn and read the law. But the reading of the prophets was always reserved at the discretion of the leader of the synagogue to name somebody of repute to stand up and read that. And he who read the prophets gave the address. So when it says he stood up to read, he would have been appointed to do that. No doubt about that. Our Lord didn't come in there to disrupt synagogue services in that way. He would have conformed to all the Jewish traditions, but he would have taken those traditions and he would have charged them with true meaning. Now you can imagine, all coming in, going through all the preliminaries of the prayers and the chants, and then coming to the prophets and the men that have been previously selected, all official men standing up there with their dignity on this seat or this platform, which was in the middle of the synagogue in some places, where they stood to read the law and then it came the time for the reading of the prophet and the leader of that synagogue, all eyes would be upon him. Who's he going to select? And they all know he's going to select. They couldn't select anybody else but this man. He almost picked himself. And you know, brethren and sisters, Edishim in his work on Jewish tradition gives us a whole page, wish I'd have brought it with me to read it to you, on the qualifications which were necessary for anyone to be selected to read from the prophet. And you know, he had to be a man who was highly respected for his mental ability in the word and a man who was highly respected for his moral attributes. A man of repute was often given to one of the leading townsmen and always to a, to a visitor. If he, had, if, if he was a visitor of repute, he got that job. Hence in Acts 13, when Paul was at Antioch, remember, they said, men and brethren, you can speak about the prophets. And Paul stood up. So Paul had gone to Antioch and he was a man of repute. A man whose intellectual ability and moral capability were well renowned. And he got that job and stood up in those synagogues and spoke as well as he did. Our Lord Jesus Christ stood up to read. And then we have one of the most remarkable expressions you'll ever read in the scriptures. 
there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now, why is that remarkable? Because actually, that is a phrase straight out of the Old Testament scripture. And where did you find it? Where else? But in Isaiah. In Isaiah 29, brethren and sisters, here it is. And here's the clue to our chapter. They delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. Well, here it is. In Isaiah 29, what do we read? What a remarkable context this is. In verse 12, verse 11 and 12 of Isaiah 29, the prophet says, And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. Here's the expression in Luke. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, read this, I pray thee. And he says, I'm not learned. And there's a remarkable passage of scripture. And they delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now here's the book delivered to two classes of people in the days of the, of the prophet brethren and sisters. And they couldn't read the book. It's delivered to a learned man. So they delivered the book to a learned man. They said, read this. And he says, me? I don't understand a word of it. I haven't got a clue. So they go to a fellow who's unlearned and they say, read that for us. And he says, hey, how would I understand it? I wouldn't have a clue. And they delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah and he found the place where it was written and he read them and he gave an exposition, brethren and sisters, that had everyone in that synagogue fascinated. And there's the difference. Now what's that chapter about, Isaiah 29? Well, in Isaiah 28 and 29, brethren and sisters, we have set before us the ignorance of Israel and Judah. Verse 1 of chapter 28. Here's the ignorance of Israel. As the prophet addresses them in chapter 28 and verse 1, Woe to the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine which simply means this, that there was the turret on top of the castle of Ahab on his ivory palace, which he had built there, and there was a lovely fertile valley which looped away towards that hill, and then the hill went up and set the castle on top, and there was the crown of pride, beautiful fertile valley, and there they were all drunk. And in verse 7, the prophet says, they've erred through wine and through strong drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness so that there is no place clean. And then hear the words of, this, of these people in verse 9. Whom shall he teach knowledge? And to whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept. Line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And that's what they were saying, brothers and sisters. And do you know, those words in verse 10, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. If you look at Rotherham's translation, you'll notice he's got that in prose, of course, and it's so set that the Hebrew they say there is so set that it's really the words of a drunk man. And what they were saying in Ephraim was this, to teach us any knowledge. We only want the milk of the word. Here a little, there a little. Precept upon precept. Line upon line. That was a drunken ditty. They were the words of people who said, we don't need the exposition of the word. All we want is the basic principles of the truth. And when we've got that, we really don't want that either. Who's going to teach us knowledge? That was the attitude, brethren and sisters, in the study classes in Israel in the days of Isaiah the prophet when the book was delivered and no one could read it. And you want to be extremely thankful and not proud, but extremely thankful that you belong to an ecclesia that at least gives credence to the exposition of the word that we really realise that meat is necessary, brothers and sisters, and you can't go on living on mere milk of the word and stammering out words which are almost incomprehensible because of the stupor that people get in because of ignorance. That's Israel. Judah's no better. Chapter 29. Verse 1 opens with the words, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel. Which means, of course, the Lion of God. Ariel, the Lion of God. Judah. 
Woe to Judah, to Judah, the city where David dwelt. And they were drunk too, brethren and sisters, but not with wine. Verse 9. Stay yourselves and wonder. Cry ye out and cry that are drunken, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For Yahweh has poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes. The prophets and your rulers, the seers that he covered. Yahweh, brethren and sisters, had poured upon them the spirit of deep sleep. And he delivered the book to them and they said, we don't understand it. And he got the book. He found the place where it was written. He said, the spirit of Yahweh is upon me. And he was lifting that straight out of that context, I believe, as well as Isaiah 61. But there's the expression. They delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. You know, brethren and sisters, there was a prophecy in that 29th chapter that it would happen. Verse 18. The prophet had prophesied, in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book and joy in Yahweh and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Didn't he say that? He come to preach the gospel to the poor. So in that day the deaf would hear the words of the book, the eyes of the blind would see out of obscurity and darkness, the meek would increase their joy in Yahweh, and the poor among men would rejoice. That's exactly the context of Isaiah 61. And so the book got delivered. It got delivered to Israel in ignorance, and it got delivered to him, and he knew what it meant. You know, brethren and sisters, it's a marvellous blessing to have someone tell you what the Bible means. It's a wonderful blessing to have that. And there he was, and he stood up that day and he read that marvellous passage of Scripture. Now when we come back to Luke chapter 4, look at the passage that was read. What a passage of Scripture it is. You see, it was a passage, really, that gave him his authority to commence his public ministry. For it said, Verse 18, we don't have to turn to Isaiah because here it's quoted for us. The Spirit of Yahweh is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel. Now you can imagine those people at Nazareth all sitting there, 25 years we've known that chap. We've never heard him before till this day. He comes back here in an order of fame. We don't understand it. He's just an ordinary Nazarene. Every eye's on him. And he stands up and he says, you haven't heard me for 25 years and here's the reason. Because now the Spirit of Yahweh is upon me and he's anointed me to preach. And I believe, brethren and sisters, when he read those words, there would have been, of course, a tremendous point for the rule of the synagogue who thought that he had appointed the reader for the day. The providence, brethren and sisters, appointed the reader for the day. Now here is something which is interesting. When we get a list of the readings set down by the Jewish tradition, Isaiah 61 was especially chosen for the Day of Atonement. Now that's interesting. More than interesting as we go through this chapter. Because the, although there's only tradition, internal evidence here, brethren and sisters, suggests it's correct. Why would that be selected for the Day of Atonement? Of course it would be selected for the Day of Atonement. Because you see, when you come back to Isaiah 61, where the words a little bit more clearer and pointed to the Day of Atonement. This is what you read. Of course they select this for the Day of Atonement. What else? And if we were selecting something from the prophets, this is the one we would select with the Day of Atonement. Because we read here in Isaiah 61 and verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me, because Yahweh hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek, he hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. To proclaim liberty? Come back to Leviticus 25, brethren and sisters, to the Day of Atonement. Now you look at the tie up here. And you'll see what I meant when I said some of the internal evidence that that would be right, that this would be the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 25 deals with the year of Jubilee. Verse 9. Then thou shalt cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month in the day of atonement. 
You shall make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. And you shall hallow the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the inhabitants, all the land and all, unto all the inhabitants thereof. And it shall be a jubilee unto you and so forth. And so Isaiah 61 says he was to proclaim liberty and in verse 2 to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's the year of Jubilee. So Isaiah 61 is actually an exposition of the, of the year of Jubilee. That's right. So Luke 4, he's in that synagogue. That's the daily reading. That's the day of atonement. You imagine that? And brethren and sisters, how fitting was that? How fitting was it? Look at the fitness of it. Look at the fitness of it. This man is in that synagogue. He is about to officially commence his ministry of atonement doing what? Preaching the kingdom of God the year of Jubilee. And Jesus came into all Galilee, said Mark, preaching the gospel of God. And Luke and the others had their testimony preaching the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. There was a trumpet sounding in the synagogue at Nazareth on the very day telling the people about the acceptable year of Yahweh. What better day to have the reading of Isaiah 61 done than on the Day of Atonement? Of course. Of course it's right. And so the Spirit of Yahweh was upon him to preach. Now coming back to Luke and continuing that quotation from Isaiah, brothers and sisters, what did he say? It wasn't just simply that the Spirit of Yahweh came upon him. Oh no. Look what it did. See in verse 18 he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me. Reading from the Hebrew, he would be telling that congregation that he had made him Messiah. That's what he'd be telling them. And you imagine the eyes and the ears of those Nazarenes in that synagogue looking at this fellow, they can't take their eyes off him. It says the eyes of all of them were fastened on him. They couldn't get over it. They were absolutely spellbound by what he was saying and they were fascinated because this one claims to be the anointed of Yahweh. It's one thing to have the Spirit come upon you, brethren and sisters. It's another thing to be anointed with it. He is the Messiah. That's what he's claiming to be. The word, of course, anointed in there is Christ, which is the Greek, the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah. That's what he's claiming. And what's he claiming to do? He's claiming to preach the gospel. And where do you find that? Isaiah 40. Say unto the cities of Judah, lift up your voice with good tidings. Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach good tidings. Isaiah 61, which he's quoting uses the expression good tidings. That's where the gospel is, in Isaiah. Now, brethren and sisters, it's in one other place in Isaiah too. I want you to have a look at it with me. Because what God was telling them, he was coming on this day to do this very thing. There was going to be one come to do it, to preach the gospel. Not a dozen, one. Isaiah 41. Have a look at this. Have a look at this. And look at the context of it. He was the one coming to preach the gospel. Look at the context of this. Verse 26 of Isaiah 41. Now what we'll do, brethren and sisters, we'll read through to chapter 42, verse 1. We'll ignore the chapter division because there are no chapters and verses in the Hebrew. You listen to this. Verse 26 of Isaiah 41. Who has declared from the beginning that we may know and before time that we may say he is righteous? Yea, there is none that showeth. Yea, there is none that declareth. Yea, there is none that heareth your words. The first shall say to Zion, Behold, behold them, and I will give to Jerusalem one that bringeth good tidings. So what's the prophet saying? Who's going to tell the people about this? Nobody. God can't find anyone who can put it together but how he wants to put it together. Nobody can declare it to them. Nobody understands. And God says, I'm going to give you the first one to preach good tidings. Now let's follow the context. Verse 28. For I beheld and there was no man, even among them, and there was no counsellor 
that when I asked them, could answer a word, behold, they are all vanity, their works are nothing, their molten images are wind and confusion, behold my servant. There he is. As if God's finger was pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's him, the first. The one that I'm going to give to preach good tidings when nobody else could give a right answer. Hand the book to this one, hand the book to that one, I don't understand it. Give it to him and he finds the place exactly where he wants, reads it and expounds it. That's the one, says God. Behold my servant. What a remarkable passage of scripture that is, brethren and sisters. And here was a wonderful prophecy of the one that God would give in the midst of all the ignorance of Israel. And look what he said, reading again from that fourth chapter of Luke. How his mind must have revolved around the very core of the prophecy of Isaiah. Marvelous expressions here. All right, so he's anointed to preach the gospel. He's here officially now on God's behalf, the one that was given to Zion. And God has sent him to preach the gospel to the poor. The word in the Greek, brethren and sisters, means to cringe as a beggar. One who cringes as a beggar. Not necessarily a person literally poor. Although the vast majority would be such. We're not here to justify riches, brethren and sisters. But let's just say this. There would have been hordes of people in Israel who were poor and never knew it. There would have been stacks of people, broken hearted, but didn't admit to it. There was all people blind and didn't know it. It's not a question of being poor or blind or broken hearted, brothers and sisters, in the literal sense. It's a question of being those things in the spiritual sense. Being poor, knowing you're poor. That's the point of it. Poor in spirit, as Matthew puts it in the fifth chapter of the wonderful discourse on the mount. That's what it means, brethren and sisters. Poor in spirit, who cringes as a beggar. Isaiah 66. One with an attitude like this. This is the poor that Jesus came to preach to, brethren and sisters. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus saith Yahweh, the heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye will build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made. And all these things have been, saith Yahweh. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. That's the ones to whom he came to preach the gospel to, brothers and sisters. And you know something? He stood up in the synagogue at Nazareth to announce that Yahweh had made him the Messiah to do that. Here was the public announcement that that ministry was beginning and there was not in that synagogue one single poor person. Not one. Not one broken hearted. Not one person blind. Not one person in that room was in need of God. Yet he stood there to make that announcement. That's how the day of atonement for Israel opened, brethren and sisters. It got no response at all. Incredible, isn't it? But there was the announcement. There was the offer. But nobody thought themselves poor enough to be in need. They might not have had much money. Some of them would have been abjectly poor. But in spirit, proud as punch. No way were they going to submit to that. They weren't going to be called poor. They didn't need that sort of thing in their life and they didn't get it. He came to preach the gospel to the poor. He was sent, says Luke, to heal the broken hearted. The word in the Greek here means to heal, but back in the Hebrew it means to wrap firmly. So back in Isaiah 61, from whence he's quoting in the original Hebrew, he'd come to wrap hearts together that were split. And there were many broken hearts in Israel, brethren and sisters, that he bound up. He left one down in Samaria. That poor woman who was, who was deluded by the error of her people, bewildered by the, by the controversy between Jew and Gentile, whose heart ached to know the truth of the matter, and he bound that heart up. But she wanted it that way, didn't she? But there are others whose hearts were not so, brethren and sisters, 
the other class, Isaiah had spoken of when he said, their hearts had waxed gross. The word in the Hebrew means thick or fat. Their hearts weren't splitting in two. They were packed with fat. A heart that was packed up with fatness, firm as a rock, never could it be broken. Too proud for that. Too full of self. Their hearts had waxed gross. That's what Isaiah had said. They were an opposite class. He came to recover the sight of the blind. What if you didn't think you were blind? In chapter 9 of John's Gospel, brethren and sisters, there were people like that. You can't give people something back they haven't lost. And in the ninth chapter of John, there were people who didn't believe they were blind, though they were, or they were spiritually blind, but they didn't think they were. And after he'd healed the blind man, Jesus in verse 39 of John 9 says, For judgment I am coming to this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. You see, brethren and sisters, they were blind, but they wouldn't admit it. You know, we're all like that. We don't like to come to the study class and say and ask the simplest questions to admit that we're poor and we'd like to know something. Oh, we'll reserve it perhaps for another occasion. Perhaps we'll try and do our best to search it out for ourselves, though we might never find it. But to ask publicly, no way would we do that. But if we were poor enough, brethren and sisters, if we were contrite in heart, we wouldn't care a rash what people thought. We'd seek for the understanding and we'd find it. That's who Jesus came to. Look, on another occasion he said, I am not sent, save to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He wasn't talking about all Israel. He was talking about those who were lost. But they're all, if you go and ask the Jews whether he was lost, he'd say, oh, come on, I'm a Jew, I'm not lost. Well, he's not a member of the lost sheep of Israel. He doesn't need saving. That's who Jesus came to. He came to those who were lost, those who were poor, those who were brokenhearted, and those who were blind. And they recovered that sight. And then Luke says, to set at liberty them that are bruised. That, brothers and sisters, is not from Isaiah 61. That's from Isaiah 58. But you might say to me, wait a minute, wasn't the reading for the day Isaiah 61? Yes, it was. But do you know what the traditions allowed? The traditions allowed that if the man who read the prophets and gave the address, providing he read the basic prophet, he was permitted to string pearls. That's how they used to use the expression to put together a string of pearls. And that expression was used which allowed the speaker to bring other passages which were related to the one that he was reading. If he could bring them to mind and bring them forward into that passage, that was allowable in the reading of the, of the prophets on the, on the, in the synagogue. To string pearls was the expression used. And this expression from Isaiah 58 is a pearl, brethren and sisters, strung with Isaiah 61 because it speaks of the same thing, the Day of Atonement. To set at liberty them that are bruised is taken from Isaiah 58 and verse 6. And this is one of the pearls that Jesus strung with, Isaiah 61. Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and let the oppressor go free, and that ye break every yoke. Now the expression in the Greek and in the Hebrew is taken from that verse. Not from Isaiah 61, it's there. And what's this chapter about, brethren and sisters? Verse 5. Is it such a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? What day was that? What was the day that was chosen, brethren and sisters, for a man to afflict his soul? The day of atonement. Look at it. Leviticus 16. No wonder Jesus strung this one together. And as I say, there's internal evidence here that he kept to that tradition that day, being the day of atonement. Because look at this one. And bringing Isaiah 58 forward, which in its turn quotes this passage, in Leviticus 16 and in verse 29, speaking of that great and terrible day of atonement, verse 29 of Isaiah 16, or rather Leviticus 16 says, And this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, 
Ye shall afflict your souls. Isaiah 58. And to do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourns among you. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before Yahweh. It shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls. And as he stood up in that synagogue, brethren and sisters, those are the two things he was doing. He was calling upon them to afflict their souls, and at the same time, offering them the opportunity to be clean from all their sins. That's what Isaiah 61 is talking about. And the day of atonement was not that men might come before God and with a mournful expression on their face endure that day as a miserable day in their life. That was not the reason at all. It was twofold, brothers and sisters. It was men might come and come before God and cringe like a beggar and say, I am in desperate need of your riches. That men might come and say, I am blind and I need you to cover my sight. Broken hearted and to bind me up. And when they realised that God had taken away from them that day all their sins and made them clean, they were free. Isaiah 61. They were then free. And joy was the result of that day. Not remorse and depression. That's not what Isaiah, Isaiah said. That's not what God wanted. Undo the heavy burden. Clean from all your sins. Free indeed, as Jesus told them in another place in John's Gospel. That's what he was trying to tell them in that synagogue. And that was a marvellous day, brothers and sisters, that day of atonement. It surely was. And then, of course, in Luke chapter 4, the last sentence from Isaiah 61, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. To preach the acceptable Year of the Lord. Now we need to be careful about that. Because it's absolutely beautiful. You see the word acceptable in the Greek means approved. Or a delight. Something that God approves of. And has delighted. Exactly the same word as verse 24. No prophet is accepted in his own country. They had no delight in the Lord Jesus Christ. Did not approve of him and had no delight in him. And he was there preaching the acceptable year of Yahweh. The year of Yahweh's delight and of his approval. Now brethren and sisters, you put it together, on the day of atonement they had to proclaim the year of liberty. So you see, the Day of Atonement was not singled out that that should be separately a day of mournful remorse. Surely it was there to afflict their souls, but it was on that day that they proclaimed a year of God's delight. That day was charged with hope, if only they could see it. But they didn't see that at all. You know, in Isaiah 63 you'll find that that year and a day principle, as it is in Isaiah 61, is contrasting. There is a day of atonement, but a year of jubilee. What a marvellous thing that is. Look at it in Isaiah 63. Verse 4. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. That's the day of atonement, proclaiming the year of jubilee. And if you want to know the principle of it, brethren and sisters, back to Psalm 30. Here's the principle. Stated in very simple terms what that's all about. Isaiah 30 gives us the principle of the day of atonement and the year of jubilee. Brother, Psalm 30 I'm talking of, not Isaiah. In Psalm 30. And we read in verse 5. For his anger endureth for a moment in his favour is life. Weeping may endure for a night but joy cometh in the morning. That's what it's all about. And so you see, brothers and sisters, they weren't two separate occasions. There was the Day of Atonement but on that day there was the proclamation of liberty and that's what he was trying to tell them in that synagogue. 
He was showing to them, brothers and sisters, that here was the opportunity to be clean from all their sins and to enjoy life eternal if they would but see that they were poor, blind, miserable and naked and come to grips with that fact and come to him for help. That's how they had to afflict their souls and then find joy and happiness in accepting the acceptable year of Yahweh. But no way were they going to do that. And when we read that he closed the book, he read those words to preach the acceptable year of Yahweh and closed the book. And you imagine them all waiting, spellbound, as he read that. Or they'd heard the words before, but I'll tell you something, brethren and sisters, never would they have heard them read like that. Never would they have heard them read like that. And their eyes would have been riveted on that book and there would have been perfect emphasis in the right places. He hadn't yet given his exposition. It was a mere reading. But you can imagine the people spellbound and they get into the middle of a sentence and all of a sudden they hear the roll get rolled out. They look up and he stopped. What stopped him? He's in the middle of a sentence. Then he closed up the roll. He rolled up the scroll. It would make a considerable noise. And all their attention would be distracted. And their heads would shoot up. What's he stopped for? Because the next word says, the day of vengeance of our God. You see, the day of vengeance is not quite the same as the day of atonement. If we would accept the day of atonement, we won't be the subjects of the day of vengeance. That's to come. But you see, brethren and sisters, there was a sense in which the year of God's acceptance had come. The kingdom of heaven was among them. The personage who was to head that kingdom is there. He that hath the Son hath life. So that had come in that sense. Here was their opportunity. Look at the second of Corinthians chapter 6. Here's the same word for the acceptable year of Yahweh. This time it come in the sense that now is their opportunity to seize it. And stopping in the middle of a sentence which said that the day of vengeance had not yet come. Here was there still their opportunity and we read in verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 6 for he saith I have heard thee in a time accepted that's the same Greek word and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold now is the accepted time behold now is the day of salvation. So there was an accepted time and a day of salvation. That's your combination again of the day of atonement and the year of jubilee. And where's Paul quoting from? Isaiah 49. So there it is. Now is the acceptable time. All right, the year of jubilee hasn't come, brethren and sisters, but if we're going to be approved and be made a delight in the kingdom, now's the day to do it. And the day of vengeance is yet future. But the day of salvation is here too. The day of atonement is here because the proclamation has been made. Those two days in effect have come. The day rather and the year. The day of atonement is here. This is their opportunity to be approved. But the day of vengeance is in the future. Now Luke says, when he had closed the book, he sat down. Brothers and sisters, he wouldn't have resumed his normal seat. He sat down. And we read that and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. If he had gone down into the audience and sat down, there's no way that every eye would have been fastened on him. He'd have been on a common level. It would have been difficult to see him in the crowd. There was a raised platform where the prophets were read and the exposition was always given by the, by the man being seated. As Jesus told them, they sit in Moses' seat. And the custom was taken from the book of Deuteronomy where they all came and sat at the lawgiver's feet and he spread that, they spread out before him and he sat above them, over them and above them and he taught them the law. They sat in Moses' seat and you can imagine as he sat down and the eyes of every, every pair of eyes in that synagogue were fastened on him, says Luke, fastened on him. Absolutely fascinated. And he began to say unto them, began. That's all Luke tells us. We don't know a thing that he said except this. This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. 
Now, the fact Luke says he began, brethren and sisters, clearly tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ would have given an exposition of the word. Oh, I'd have loved to heard that. Luke doesn't tell us what it was. But he does tell us it happened. We know, however, the purpose of his talk. You see, Brian announced this evening that this would be rejected as natural. So the whole thrust of my talk is that's around that theme. His theme was, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And every pair of eyes were fastened on it. What he's saying is this. The scripture was not fulfilled, brothers and sisters, in his appearance. Or they would see no beauty to desire in him. And that's exactly what happened. And the longer their eyes were fastened on him, and their fascination passed into scepticism, they said, that's Joseph's son. But if they'd listened to their ears, they'd have come to a different conclusion. But because they kept looking at him, and he's trying to tell them, the scripture's not fulfilled in your eyes, it's fulfilled in your ears. Now let me tell you something, brethren and sisters. You could not have got a more total fulfilment of scripture than that. Now we might say that when Christ comes, this or that scripture is going to be fulfilled. And we might say that when that scripture is used before that time, then we have what we call an incipient or a partial fulfilment of it. That's true. You'd never get a greater and more full fulfilment than this when he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me. In other words, Isaiah is actually telling us what Messiah was saying and there he is saying it. It was like looking into a book, brethren and sisters, and hearing, reading a, a story and then turning around and someone is acting it out right alongside him. And that's the one that he's talking about. This day, this is fulfilled in your ears. They were listening to the voice of Isaiah. Who's speaking? The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me. That's his voice. So the scripture, brethren and sisters, was fulfilled that day. He had been anointed at the Jordan to preach the gospel. He is there doing it, and that is his voice in their ears. But they kept their eyes on him, and they saw no beauty that they should desire him. That's the problem, brethren and sisters. And then Luke drops a little hint as to what part of the exposition would have been about. He began to say to them in verse 21, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. To put that literally, the words of grace that proceeded out of his mouth. So whatever he said was very gracious. He didn't upbraid them on that occasion. His theme was not negative. He took a very positive theme. He came to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. He came to preach good tidings. So the speech in the synagogue at Nazareth, brethren and sisters, though he never got a single response, was positive, all positive. That does not mean to say that we only should preach positive things. I'm not saying that. The Lord was very negative on other occasions, but always with a positive motive, of course. But what I'm trying to tell you is this. That speech was all positive, and they accepted that. He didn't upbraid them then. He gave a beautiful exposition of the word and words of grace poured out of his lips. Now there's only one expression that I know in the whole Bible like that. Isaiah 45. I don't know of any expression that comes anywhere near it but this one. Isaiah 45 verse 1 says, my heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Psalm 45. Grace is poured into thy lips. Did I say Isaiah? Did I? Sorry about that. We'll read that again for you. Psalm 45, verses 1 and 2. 
My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. That's the closest expression you'll ever get. And that's what I believe he's alluding to. Now you see what happened. He's got Isaiah 61, hasn't he? He began. Now if he began by reading Isaiah 61 verse 1, he had to give an exposition of the chapter, wouldn't he? We read in Acts chapter 8 that when Philip went to the eunuch and the eunuch was reading Isaiah 53, it says, and beginning of that scripture, he preached unto him the Lord Jesus Christ, he would have come to Isaiah 56 when it says, let not the eunuch's armour drive true. So beginning at a place where he knows he's going to finish, that's what the scripture's trying to tell us. And Luke is the writer there. So there's Luke's method. So when Luke says he began, we would have understood from that that he went through Isaiah 61. Now what's Psalm 45 about? It's a wedding, isn't it? You know that. It's about a wedding. Solomon's wedding with the daughter of Sarah. A marvellous wedding. Splendour. And his heart was indicting a good matter. It's a wedding theme. What's Isaiah 61 finished with, brethren and sisters? A wedding theme. They wondered at the words of grace which poured out of his lips. And Isaiah 61 in verse 10, the chapter winds up with a wedding theme. Isaiah 61 and verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. Isn't that wonderful? But you know something else? Do you know what the Jews did on Friday nights? Now this is a well-known tradition. On Friday night, they got ready to meet the Sabbath. They used to view the Sabbath as a visitor. So they dressed their houses up on Friday night to meet the, the Sabbath. And they dressed their houses up as a bride. And they saw the coming Sabbath as the bridegroom. That's what the Jews used to do. These people on that Sabbath day would have been there. Their houses all decked with the ornaments of the bride. Decorated for the occasion. That's a wedding thing. And on that particular day, on the Day of Atonement, proclaiming the year of Jubilee, when everyone was going to go back to their inheritance, eventually, when families would be reunited. What a marvellous theme that was. One can only conjecture, I know, brethren and sisters, but with the little expressions that Luke drops here and there, beginning at the scripture, grace pouring from his lips, taking us back to Isaiah, Psalm 45 and the wedding scene there, verse 10 of Isaiah 61, the practice of the Jews, there all was. And what a marvellous thing it would have been to hear him give a talk about wedding. I don't think it would have been quite the ones that we hear quite often, would have been a brilliant thing, magnificently exposed by our Lord Jesus Christ as he wove those pearls of scripture together from Isaiah particularly on that glorious wedding, on that wedding which of course is yet to come. Now you know it's tragic. It says in verse 22 of Luke 4, you look at the verse, and in this verse, brethren and sisters, there's a change of mood, and you've got to be able to perceive it. It's not hard. Verse 22 of Luke 4 says, And all bear him witness and wonder at the words of grace which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Now, you've got to make a word picture of that to see what happened. When he finished his exposition, people with goggle eyes, they'd be like that, staring at him. They'd never heard anything like it in all their lives. They'd be tingling with the exposition of the word. And as they stared at him, Luke says, fastening their eyes on him with a fascination. Gradually, brethren and sisters, the words in their ears would go away and all they'd see with their eyes, but, 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 it's Joseph's son. And they were gone. They didn't listen to him. And their eyes took over and they judged according to the sight of their eyes. They judged according to the flesh. And all they heard went out the window. And Luke keeps telling us, it was all of them. Not one. They weren't a divided audience. They all fought together. They were all fascinated. And then skepticism took over and they saw him as Joseph's son, so they thought. And they started to think things in their mind. And Jesus read their mind. As he always did. He knew what they were thinking. And this is what they were thinking. We know this by what happened. 
They went something like this. They were staring at his exposition, thrilled with it. But they thought, well, yeah, but no, look, no, he couldn't. He's not Messiah because that's Joseph's son. And if he were Messiah, he'd prove his claim. He'd do something marvellous. He'd do a miracle. The Jews never wanted a miracle. Jesus said, you will surely say unto me, physician, heal yourself. See, he read their minds. And physician, heal yourself, brothers and sisters, was saying virtually, you'll say to me, demonstrate your power and prove your claim. And he knew exactly what they were thinking. And then he knew exactly why they were thinking it. You'll say to me, do what you did at Capernaum. You see, their minds were miles away from that exposition. They'd forgotten all of that Isaiah 61 or Psalm 45 or the wedding or whatever else he thought. The acceptable year of Yahweh. Forgot about it. They wanted a miracle. And they remembered he'd just seen it. Mount Cana. He'd set a power to, to Capernaum and they wanted that repeated. That's how the Jews think, brethren and sisters. No, he wasn't going to do it there. Later on we read concerning Nazareth, he could do no miracle there because of their unbelief. There wasn't enough faith in the whole of that village to produce one miracle. Not one could he do in that place because that's the way they thought. They would force him to do it, force him to prove his claim. Why didn't they listen with their ears and forget their eyes? Why didn't they close their eyes and think about what he was saying? But no, their eyes fastened on him Close their ears because they judged according to the sight of their eyes. And so Jesus said, A prophet is not accepted in his own country. He answered a proverb with a proverb. They said, Physician, heal yourself. Demonstrate your claim. Demonstrate it. He said, Even if I did, you wouldn't accept me because I'm your own country. You wouldn't accept it then. And they wouldn't. But there are, are people who would. I'll tell you a truth, he said. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and great famine was throughout all the land. But under none of them was Elijah sent save to Zarepta, a city of Zidon under a woman that was a widow. She'd listen. She did, brothers and sisters, you know. You take the point. She was a widow. She didn't have their advantages. She was a Gentile widow. What did she believe? You know what she believed? She believed the hearing of her ears. You know what she said? When he came to the widow of Zarephath and she had a son dying of hunger and he asked her to make him a morsel of bread and she knew that she had pitiful death, she used this expression. She says, as truly as Yahweh thy God liveth. You know what that was? That, brethren and sisters, was an echo of his own words to Ahab. As truly as Yahweh my God liveth. And that echoed right over to Zarephath and she quoted them exactly back to him. She heard it. That would have been reported to her. So what she said was exactly an echo of what he said to Ahab. She'd hear it with her ears. She didn't fasten her eyes on him and say he's only got dressed in a, in a, in a goat skin or something. She listened. And she was a widow and she was a Gentile. And that happened, says Jesus Christ, at a period when there was a three and a half year famine and they were about, brethren and sisters, to witness the beginning of that. He was about to step into a three and a half year ministry in which they were to perish in a drought. A drought of spirituality. Of lack of spirituality, I should say. An absolute famine. Or as Amos puts it, a famine of hearing the word of God. And Elijah was sent to that widow. You know, brothers and sisters, in a prophetic period of not many years, a greater part of that time was devoted to that woman. God sent him there, the great prophet Elijah, who was going to transform the whole of Israel, but he didn't do it. Nobody listened to him, did they? Oh, there were the prophets. There were the 7,000 who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal, but apart from them, other people would never bow to him. You know, when Elijah departed, the only positive work recorded of him at all was that widow. God is very merciful, brethren and sisters, and he took a big portion of that prophetic period of Elijah's life and he gave it to that widow that she might respond to the truth. And respond she did. She wasn't the only Gentile who listened. She came from the city of Sidon. A prophet is not accepted in his own country. Doesn't that make the point? 
because Ahab, in the days of Elijah, he was the king, he had married Jezebel, king, who was the daughter of the king of the Zidonians. Nobody in his country was listening to him, and the only response he could get was in the hometown of Jezebel. Didn't that make the point in the city of Nazareth? You think of that. No wonder, brethren and sisters, the anger was rising. You could almost see the steam coming out of that meeting. As he was saying to them, I'd do better in Jezebel's country than here. A prophet's not acceptable here, but in a country that you despise, I'd do better. And he finishes in verse 26 by saying that this woman was of the city of Zidon under a woman that was a widow. He repeats it. Why? Because he wants to show, brethren and sisters, that as far as they were concerned, she would be downgraded. She was only a woman. They weren't held in high esteem in those days. She was a widow woman, so she had no nobody to represent her anyway. She was a Gentile woman and she lived in a rotten country but she listened. Didn't get that response here, he said. There were many lepers in Israel in the days of Elisha. You know, brethren and sisters, there were. You might say, well, Jesus said there were. Yes, there were. And we have a record of it, you know that. You may have read it sometime or other. We won't turn to it now, but in the second of Kings chapter 7, when there was a famine in the land, when the Syrians had besieged the city, and Jehoram, the son of Ahab, was on the throne, there were four lepers sitting in the gates in the days of Elisha. He didn't bother to heal them. Nobody cared about them. And that record is there in Elisha's life. Almost as if Jesus was saying, well, you've got a record of it. There were many lepers. Don't believe it. Look at the second of Kings. There was four of them in the gate at one time. And they were all sitting there in the days of a famine and that happened, brethren and sisters, after he had healed Naaman the leper. Naaman had already been in the land, already been healed of his leprosy, gone back to Syria and still those lepers were sitting outside the gate of the city, unhealed. There were many lepers in the days of Elisha, but he says none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Brothers and sisters, Elisha wasn't sent to him, but he believed the words of a little Jewish maid. You imagine the Lord sitting in the midst of that crowded synagogue with all those eyes on him and thinking of the opportunity that they had and talking about this mighty king, this mighty officer rather, who was the officer of the king, the captain of his army thinking about a man of great dignity, a man who ruled the army, who normally would be a brutal man of violence. He listened to a little Jewish captain. You only mean. He got more response from that little, that little girl. got more response from him than I can get from you. And he's a Gentile. That's what he's telling them, brethren and sisters. And verse 28 says, and all they in the synod. Again, that word all. In verse 20, all the eyes were on him. In verse 22, they all bear him witness and wonder his gracious words and now all of them are filled with wrath. Not one of them responded. And what are they indignant about, brethren and sisters? They're indignant about God's grace towards the Gentiles. Oh, yes. They were absolutely spellbound when our Lord spoke of the things, the grace which poured out of his lips when he pointed out the wedding theme of Israel that they were indignant when he spoke about God's grace to the Gentiles, they couldn't bear that. And of course, the instance was that they didn't respond like those Gentiles. Why didn't they, brethren and sisters? I tell you why. Because they never felt famished like that woman, and they never felt leprous like Naaman. But if they hadn't, they would have responded. If they knew that they were starved to death for spirituality, if they knew that they were moral lepers, they would have listened to him. But they didn't think they were. And so they were filled with wrath. And what did they do? Look how this chapter, this incident closes. What did they do? Verse 29. They rose up. They thrust him out of the city and led him under the brow of the hill whereupon the city was built that they might cast him down headlong. Do you know, brothers and sisters, what's absolutely remarkable about that? That is exactly what Jewish tradition did to the scapegoat. 
When the law of Moses put the two goats before the priest, and the goat upon whom the lot fell for the sacrifice was slain that day and his blood was sprinkled before the most holy. And the scapegoat was taken by a man of opportunity, says Leviticus, a certain man in the authorised version, but the, the Hebrew says, as the margin says, a man of opportunity, in other words, he who happened to be there could take away that live goat and he was supposed to let the live goat go alive in the wilderness with all their sins upon him to be taken into a land not inhabited. But because the Jews misread the law, they instructed that man to drive that goat over a cliff. And that's what they always did. And unbeknown to them, what they were doing was making the atonement one-sided. It was all death and no life. And their sin remained. And when on this day of atonement, when he read that lesson, and all their anger rose up, they took him out and did with him or tried to do with him exactly what they did with the, day, the goat on the Day of Atonement when they tried to throw him over a cliff. Imagine the mind of our Lord thinking about that. They would know. But as they crowded around our Lord and with a verbal onslaught kept driving him towards this precipice just by Nazareth here to drive him over the top and the crowds crowding up before him, how his mind would dwell upon that. He'd think to himself, yes, that's just exactly what would happen. And on the day of atonement, when they should have let him go, that he might go to God to take away all our sins, they would drive him over that cliff. What a lesson that was, brethren and sisters. But of course it says, but he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. All sorts of conjecture has been set forth as to exactly what happened. Some say that the eyes of the crowd were made blind, some say this and some say that. I think myself, you just accept the records of what it says. I think what would have happened in a mad fury, they would have driven him to the brow of this hill. He would have had his back to them. He would have been carried along by the crowd, pushed and shoved and they would be shouting and cursing and carrying on. And I believe when he got there, the Lord would have turned around, brethren and sisters, and everyone would have prayed. And all eyes would have been fastened on him again. The Lord would look with a determined look back and walk straight through that crowd and not a finger would move against him. Such was the bearing of our Lord. His hour had not yet come, brethren and sisters, and the scripture says he went his way, which was not the way they were going. And he left Nazareth, brethren and sisters, and he came after that to Capernaum. And he set up headquarters there, so much so that Matthew says later on it was his own city. He'd given up Nazareth. They'd thrown away their opportunity, brethren and sisters, and they'd failed to listen to the gracious word which proceeded out of his mouth. They judged according to the sight of their eyes. What a great tragedy. And here we are in this place, brethren and sisters. The day of atonement is here. This is the day of not only of atonement when we afflict our souls, but it's a day of opportunity as well. It's the acceptable time for us to be accepted into the year of Jubilee. That's the wonderful words of grace that are poured forth from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ for us. Let's not reject that, brothers and sisters. Let's not reject it. Let's accept that. And let's go with him, to be with him on that glorious day when there will be another great national day of atonement for all the world. And that trumpet will sound. And with the downfall of this world on the great national day of atonement, brothers and sisters, which will then be, of course, the day of vengeance, it will be for us the beginning, a wonderful beginning of a whole year, that is an eternity of jubilee. 